I'm Julian Brandt and you're listening to Scouted Chance. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 7 of Scouted Says from Scouted Football. We're bringing you our new podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the Premier League. We're going to chat about youth football in both North America and Europe and talk a little bit about Monaco. As always, I'm Chad Grimsey alongside Connor Garrett and today we're joined by Stephen Ganovis. Hello, pleasure to be back as always. G'day boys. <laughs> Sorry, I thought that it was fine. Hey, Jack, how are you going? Good, good, Steve. Glad that you could join us at two in the morning there after you finish your job for the night. Yeah, hard workers, hard workers. Yeah, someone's got to pay for us to host the podcast on SoundCloud (laughs) and for the website. So good job out there. All right, let's start with Pep and Man City. Right before, what is it, Wednesday's match against Watford, which they won 2-0. It looked like they had been slipping. So they were leading the Premier League from match day 2 through 10. And on match day 11, they slipped into third. And three games later, they lost to Chelsea and slipped all the way to fourth, I guess. So that's where they are now. Yeah, um, I think the, the thing that's interesting is the fact that at the start of the season, it sort of looked like it was cities to lose. And that, I mean, going forward, it might end up proving that Pep is this absolutely insane alien manager who just can't do any wrong in the league obviously I think that's proven that I mean it might still be the case but he's uh, not having the easiest of seasons um, I mean obviously there's been a few difficulties with discipline with like Aguero missing quite a few games um, he's now going to be missing like Gundogan who has been a key player so far I think the thing that he's noticed is that he actually has, he's, he's struggled to sort of adapt to the Premier League and I think he's sort of said that in interviews this week so doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best league in the world and anyone can be anyone, but um, I think him trying to adapt Man City to the way that he's trying to play has worked out a lot, lot less well than it did when he was at uh, Bayern, um, having had some success at Barcelona. I think maybe that's down to the fact that you know Bayern were a a treble-winning side when he took them over and City uh, weren't great last season, so it's a bigger transition job. I think maybe having a go him for not doing incredibly in, I don't know, five months down the line in, a, in his job, maybe a little bit over the top. But yeah, he's he probably has a bit of room for improvement at the moment. Yeah, I think he's quickly finding out that there are a lot of other big teams that can beat him in England. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like Chelsea is the key example of that. Um, maybe we'll see something against Arsenal at the weekend as well, which is uh, definitely a game to watch from a scouted perspective. Um, but yeah, I think the, the the game against Chelsea, I mean, it's sort of typical for a lot of these games in that, I mean, City were by far the best team based on run of the game, chances created, but they couldn't quite finish the team off. And uh, yeah, Chelsea took advantage of the defensive flaws. I think that is the main thing of the system at the moment. They've not quite worked out the kinks and it's, it's led to quite a few mistakes. I think obviously John Stones is getting a lot of the flack um, for, oh, why is he passing out from the back? But I mean, I think it's highlighted by Lewis, who was on the show last week, that um, sometimes when they played the ball long, they then come straight back at them and the other team has scored. And I think that happened uh, the yes, weekend. I mean, it's not it's not as simple as the fact that they're trying to play the ball out from the back. I think it's just, they've got into this defensive kink and it's going to take a little while to, for it to unravel. I think Steve, you, you think you think the problem's the English mentality? Sorry to cut you off. We can go ahead. Um. I think a lot of the problem is he really walked into a ready-made squad of Bayern that was at least was kind of tried and tested in the way he played. Then he bought Thiago, and that really helped. He had Alaba, Lam, Chabi Alonso, players, and then Lewandowski, all players that were ready to play style. Whereas he's come to Man City, who played in that English style for a long time, and he's tried to buy Stones, Gundogan. But he's still got a lot of uh, a lot of holes in that squad, especially I think at wing. Kolarov, I don't think will be around. I think they're going to have to go after at least one fullback in January. Um, now with Gundogan possibly injured for a few months, he's going to go after a centre midfielder. So personally, I still think might be unpopular opinion. I still think City are the team to beat just because of Pep's track record. Even though Conte at Chelsea has a brilliant track record as well, but I still think if if City can strengthen up in January, uh, I still think they're a team to beat. Yeah, there's still a lot of the season left. You wanted to talk about Antonio Conte as well at Chelsea. It's 10 wins in a row for them. 
Yeah, Chelsea are playing some great stuff this season and Conte has proved himself again to be a wonderful coach and I think playing no Champions League this season has just suited him. He's got time to take his players out into the training pitch like he did his first season at Juventus, drill them all week, all week, all week, get them 110% tactically, physically ready and mentally ready for the weekend's game. And I think that's his big advantage. Um, it showed at Juventus in his first season, coming up against a really top Milan side with Ibrahimovic, Thiago Silva, that without those European match days, he was able to just prepare his team tactically, perfectly. Juventus barely conceded any goals that season. And, you know, well, they went unbeaten that season. Chelsea aren't going to go unbeaten this year, but 10 wins in a row. Them and City are the definite, definite uh, big boys this year. Yeah, I think so. And especially when you're chasing a title in a league like this, not conceding a goal is worth more than scoring a goal. You know, it's zero is greater than one in that that perspective, I guess. I don't know who... It's, I think it's just a different um, a, di- a different way of winning. You know, yeah, and it's grinding it out. It's 1-0 against Sunderland. It's not glamorous like what Liverpool have been doing, but Liverpool are too leaky at the back. Yeah, uh, it's... A, it's- very much on what you prefer. I'm sure of a lot of Italians would love uh, love Conte's style and what he's doing at Chelsea and think that Pep's an idiot with the way that his team's almost suicidal defensively. But yeah, it's a lot to Yeah, he's playing, he's playing three central defenders with no wingbacks, I guess, if we want to yeah. say and talk a little like, tactics on, on City again. But you, you kind of Chelsea, Chelsea totally, it was totally won on, in the tactics, I feel like. Yeah, and he, he's just, again creating the same thing that he did at Juventus. He's got Kante, who's almost Vidal-like in the way he moves around the field. He's incredible defensively, will do all the hard work, and that allows often the wing-backs to get forward. And Marcos Alonso has been wonderful. He was wonderful last season, said he are, and he's proved it again this year. And Victor Moses is a new player. You know, I think I think what's underrated with players, you know, you look at Marcus Alonso and coming in, you don't think he's maybe going to be a superstar signing because you look at their track record... Felipe Luiz and Abdul uh, Baba Rahman, they, they've burned out at Chelsea. But Alonso comes in, and what I was saying is tactical knowledge, I think, is underrated by players. You know, we never look at that. We look at how fast someone is or how good yeah. they can finish. But being able to fit into a system like that, you know, knowing what to do in every situation is huge. Yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously, I, I think he, like, obviously, having played in Italy and having like being coached by an Italian manager maybe that helps as well um I think probably the fact that it's sort of a similar system to one that he might have played at Fiorentina before um has also probably helped him to settle in like he's obviously yeah you have the the sort of step up to playing in a different league um that's obviously not always easy for players but if you're going into something that's actually kind of a continuity for you in the start of playing the system um, then you know exactly where you need to be, and I think that makes it a lot easier uh, for players. Yeah, Paolo Sousa really, really uh, prepared him well for his big move because last year he played a bit in a three-back, a bit in a four-back, but he was always given a lot of freedom to get forward. He's a really good crosser. So I think making that step up to a Conte uh, coach team hasn't been too too much of a problem for him because he's been just so well-drilled over the last you know two years or so. Yeah, I think the thing, the thing with Chelsea... Um, that is sort of interesting at the moment is obviously they've got so much momentum they've got 10 wins in a row which is just absolutely insane um, we're coming up to the Christmas period which does get congested I mean it's a cliche but the reason it is is because it's true um, they're going to have a they're going to have this this stage of the season where they don't have the advantage um, of having a few more days than a lot of their rivals at the top of the table um, and they're also probably going to have to start rotating I mean I think before we were recording, Steve, you said that Conte has a problem actually with um, getting rotation done right um, at, state, at points. Uh, I, mean, I mean, we've seen so far that the team since the, since he's had this change of formation after the Arsenal defeat earlier in the season, he's pretty much been saying that playing the same eleven week in week out with a couple of changes here and there. Um, and obviously, that's not sustainable, but especially over the winter period where he'll be playing three games in a week at some points. I don't think that's going to bode particularly well. So maybe if, if they stumble at some point due to fatigue over the Christmas period, you lose the momentum and another team can catch up somehow. But as it sounds, they're doing really, really well. Yeah, and even so, their Christmas schedule isn't very difficult really looking at it. Um, they're going to have Burnmouth, or no, sorry, they have Palace this weekend, and then it's Burnmouth, Stoke, 
and Spurs over that. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's more difficult than it looks, I think. I mean, obviously, Premier League, anyone can beat anyone. I'm doing quotation marks. <laughs> the but, but uh, I, I mean... But, but look at Liverpool. Liverpool have Stoke, Man City, Sunderland, Man, or Everton, Stoke, Man City, Sunderland, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean it could obviously be tough for that. When you're playing these games in such quick, quick succession, I think at some point it does become more difficult than just playing... Stoke or just playing Bournemouth and I mean obviously Bournemouth yeah. have been in good form recently I think Stoke are not a bad team um, despite the fact they've not been particularly great this season um, it's not the easiest uh, sort of way to play those teams playing them in you know two days three days after another so That'll no no sure but Arsenal Arsenal have City and then it's West Brom Palace Burnmouth so it's you know it's their schedule's not easy but it's not hard so I'll, I'll be interested to see if um, players like Bachway, uh get a little bit more of a run out. Cause yeah, I was gonna say I was gonna say it's even harder to play those when you're in love with your starting eleven, you know, on when you to change when you're when you're winning. It's hard to change a winning team, and it's when it's so much pressure on you at the top, and you've got everyone chasing. You don't want to make too many changes. So, Would you and, throw out a a totally second eleven? Do you think you know? Is there a game that they can do that? I just think it's too risky. Like maybe you know, change one or two players, but I think wholesale changes when you're top of the league and on really good streaks, really hard. And I don't think he's a manager with a track record of uh, taking too many risks. Like even with Juventus in a season, he had nothing to play for except for the the title. Now I think it was 2014. Uh, They'd been knocked out of the Champions League and and the cup and. He just wanted to win every game. He played Vidal, and Vidal was semi-injured. Um, he just wanted to win and win and win. And that season, Juventus won 102 points, but it, it it wasn't great for Vidal and for Chile, the World Cup. And I don't think it was great for a few of the younger players that might have deserved a shot in the team. Yeah, at least to get some minutes. But I don't know. That's that's interesting to see what, what he'll do because – you know, no one ha- really has a big enough squad to, I guess, to make full full changes just based on injuries already at this point in the season. But yeah. maybe only Arsenal have the depth, which is quite ironic. <laughs> yeah. So let's move on to Liverpool and their goalkeeper situation. We know Connor is writing the profile for Loris Karius. Yeah, I, I mean, um, I, I was very positive uh, about you know how everything was going um, in the profile. At least I was so far. I'm gonna have to <laughs> go back and make wholesale changes, um, having, having seen him dropped yesterday for uh, Mignolet, who I think we can all agree is like not as talented uh, as Karius. Uh, I mean, I think... I mean, we're Certainly all lower ceiling, you know, long-term. Yeah, and I mean, I, I've read a few articles that say, like, oh, maybe in two years Karius will be the better goalkeeper, but is the better one now, and that's what matters. And I'm like, well, I don't actually agree. I mean, this guy has been pretty much vilified by Liverpool fans the last three years. Um, and I don't think bringing him in is going to help either the team, him or Carrius, who's obviously be obviously going to be in the same situation of you know being dropped by Liverpool. I mean, Klopp has had problems with goalkeepers before his final season at Dortmund. A lot of the sort of instability was down to the fact that he just didn't know whether he wanted to play Weidenfeller or Mitch Langerak. And uh, I mean, I mean, neither were great options. Langerak's a victory legend, mate. Oh, I mean, he's yeah. I mean, that says it, says it all, really, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> and uh, Weidenfeller is sort of on the decline at that point. Um, but I feel like Klopp had to choose one or the other, and he just kept flitting between the two when they were making mistakes. And just, when you're a goalkeeper, that's not the way that you should be managed, really. You need no, no, because you think then one mistake it's the end of the world, and then when you do lose your spot, you know that's that's not good for your confidence. Sorry to. To interrupt. Oh yeah, no, I completely agree. And I, the thing for Carrius is that he came to Liverpool with quite a lot of fanfare because he had such a good season in the Bundesliga last year of Mainz. Um, I mean, what do you have? Like twelve clean sheets or something? Yeah, I mean, and this is in you know, like not the the best team of the league. I mean, they came sixth, but um, you know, they had stretches. They're not known league. for their defending. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of the the a lot of the, the wins were sort of sort of one nil or nil-nils or whatever. I mean, obviously not nil-nil wins, but yeah, you know what I mean. 
a lot of the results were sort of <laughs> well, the points they won. he was winning them points in those games um and then in the other games obviously it's the attack but the the defense at mines wasn't particularly renowned he made some really great saves he just sort of covered the ground really well uh, i mean the the one weakness that you would have picked up on is the fact that you know he's not what you'd call a sweeper keeper like he's not he's not great with his feet i mean he's better than most goalkeepers in the premier league are with their feet but he is for, I mean, for Bundesliga standards, it could have probably improved. Um, but, yeah, I mean, and that, that was the, the main weakness. But he was such an important player for the team. And the fact that he's gone, you can definitely sense that in the defence. You can sense that in the goalkeeper that Mainz now have, you know, Slursel, that, uh, you know, there's been a, a downward turn. And he's gone to Liverpool, obviously. I, I mean, I thought that he had established himself as number one when he came back from this broken hand. Um, maybe the... The fact that he didn't have this full preseason and he didn't have this like full match like experience from the start at Liverpool has worked against him uh, in the sense that you know the team was in a rhythm and he just sort of had to come into it. Uh, I'm not 100 percent sure if that's true because I think it's probably a little bit different to goalkeepers and outfield players. But he yeah, but some of, some of its uh, communication, being familiar with your defense, like what was it West Ham's second goal at the weekend? That really bad one that they gave up. That could have been eliminated with better communication. I mean, yeah, that's three mistakes by outfield players before it comes to him. And I don't yeah, that know what to do. I mean, you can analyze most of the goals, and I think yeah, obviously there was the the really bad one at the end against Bournemouth last week. That was, I mean, you can't you can't say it's not an error. Uh, it's not as huge an error as people are saying. It's not like a oh, this goalkeeper's not good enough to win Liverpool the league. I think the fact is Liverpool are not good enough to win the league. Um, there's the, the error at the free kick against West Ham is obviously poor, but again, I think it's been overstated because there's this narrative in the media against him. I think the fact that you've got like so many pundits coming out and speaking against him has probably been what has uh, led him to be dropped by Klopp rather than the fact that he's not the better goalkeeper and... No, the yeah, the external pressure. I remember seeing watching that at Villa last year with Brad Guzen, who is clearly a better goalkeeper than Mark Bunn, but there kept being, you know, Guzen made some bad errors, and then the press gets into it, and then the fans are on their back, and the the coach has to make a change for that reason. But really, really, I don't know why the goalkeeper is at fault when you look look at who Liverpool's central defenders are. They were having to play Lucas Leiva there a couple games ago. Mm. Yeah. And, I mean, there's no stability. And, you know, Dejan Lovren and Ragnar Klavan. Without Matip, they're a mess. Yeah, I know, I know. Matip is good, but... Generally, like, Lovren's been reason, like, reasonably good uh, under Klopp so far. A um, little bit of a drop recently. Um, but I think the, the problem is that, like, the defence isn't settled. Um, they've got people there that can't play there. It's just, obviously, Lucas is not great uh, as a defensive mid- midfielder, let alone a centre-back. Um I mean, even Milner's playing a left back still. I mean that. No, that's. I mean the 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 other option is playing. Right? Not, not so that it's been bad. That yeah. You um, know Milner's Milner's. It speaks to his quality as a player that he can slot in there and do the job he's doing. But you know, if you had a a world class left back, they could be doing a lot better. Yeah, I mean this is the thing. I think there's a lack of quality in quite a lot of places over the team. It's masked by the fact they've got an incredible attacking sort of like front rank so I mean obviously Divock Origi has been really really good recently I think he's got five and five like scoring five consecutive games um obviously Lallana was absolutely on fire last night uh um there's been a lot a lot of the players in the front ranks are really really impressive I mean you can just list them Mane, Firmino, uh, Coutinho so on um but I think just going backwards there's a lack of quality and maybe even a lack of confidence. And that's why, ultimately, when you go to Bournemouth and you concede four, it's not just the goalkeeper's fault. And you have to look at wider problems. So, obviously, Mignolet played really well last night. Um, but if there's one thing that the whole of his Liverpool career until now has shown, Mignolet will continue, will make more mistakes down the line. Um, and at that point, you have to think, well, maybe there's something more than just the goalkeeper that's going wrong. Um, so, I think... Realistically, Carrius will probably come back into the team in the medium term, maybe by the end of January or so. Um, and at that point, Klopp has to be thinking, maybe we need another defender, maybe we do need an orthodox left-back, maybe we need to, I don't know, increase the defensive ranks in quality as what well. What left-backs are around though, really? 
I mean, yeah, it's the million dollar question, isn't it? I mean, Klopp needs to know that rather than ourselves. Right. Such Felix Paslak at Dortmund. Such a hard position to fill, left back. It's like the worst. Yeah, David Alaba. Yeah. <laughs> no, Pep's going to spend $100 million on him because it would fix it would fix everything yeah i don't know it's it's interesting we i know us three we got into discussion if we should even talk about transfers i know steve wanted to connor did not really want to yeah i think i think we're gonna save it for for next week early Um, january early january yeah i guess so maybe next episode we're not sure um but we are going to talk about the difficulty of young players to come through the league i know connor added this segment and want to talk about Marcus Rashford, I think, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think he's the only player that's a teenager and is regularly playing in the Premier League. And that's obviously not too damning, but there have been more in recent years. Um, and there have been there are quite a few more in other leagues. I mean, obviously, the Bundesliga is great for youth development. Um, you've got players like, obviously, Kylian Mbappé coming through in France at the moment. Uh, there. I mean, there's a lot of decent young players coming through in France. Um, obviously, in Spain and Italy, you've got a handful as well. Um, but in the Premier League, you've only got one, and it's Rashford. And I mean, actually, he's been struggling this season, I think, under Mourinho. So I wanted to sort of look at why that might be. Um, Steve, if you have any ideas. Well, he, he Mourinho's awful at developing young players. Well, yeah, but Mourinho doesn't... doesn't manage all 20 Premier League clubs. Premier League is such high stakes, especially and with Rashford this year, he's just been... You know, blocked out, especially by, uh, I said especially too many times when we start again. No, um, I completely agree with, with you, Steve, is that you're, they're scared to take risks because the stakes are so high. You know, the the money that you lose for going down, if you're, you go from 14th to 18th, you know, yeah, that, can change, that can change the future of your club for 50 years. But also, it's not just relegation, it's the the permutations if, if you don't come top four, if you don't win the league. Especially for Mourinho, so much pressure. He's gone out and signed Ibrahimovic, so it's hard to to justify playing Marcus Rashford when you've you know you've just gone out and bought one of the best strikers in the world. Um, but I think yeah, all around the Premier League, so much at stake. Managers under pressure every single week. Um, that is it worth the even just the personal risk for the manager to take the risk and have something go wrong. Um, and also just for the players, if they don't have a good game or have a bad stretch, the pressure they're put under and where the coaches think that it's not worth putting them under such stress at such a young age. I think Southampton Southampton have shown the best way to do it over the years. They had um, that little guy came on, what was his name? Sims, I think, uh, a couple of weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, Sims, yeah. He played a really yeah, good we, game. Yeah, who we were talking about when Connor's electricity cut out, the great run that, that he was on in that game. Yeah, he, yeah, I don't know. I can still see it. I can replay it in my head. He was beating everyone down the pitch and then hit a square 10-yard ball and couldn't do it. It was like, oh, poor guy. So but, I, I don't know. I think... I think sorry, I, I was going to say for Southampton, I think having the Europa League helps. Yeah, especially playing teams like Hapoel Shiva. They had an easy easy group. Did it actually qualify, though? No, they came third. Um, I mean, it was pretty much... The group was the other way around to what you think it was. Cause, yeah, because um, Inter came last. But they yeah. still had a chance to <laughs> had a chance to blood some some young guys. Yeah, because even if you lose all six games, you you could still have your young guys play six games you and against totally, pretty decent teams. Yeah. I well, think. I think it's even that. I mean, it's, it's more opportunities in all of the games for younger players because you need to have that bigger squad yeah, to do it. Squad. Yeah, um, and obviously that's been good for McQueen. Um, it's been good for Sims, who finally made his debut. Um, and James Ward Prowse just keeps banging on. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Harrison Reed has come into the team a little bit in recent weeks. Um, Jake Hesketh had a, a decent few weeks and will probably feature more as the season goes on. I think a lot of that is down to the fact that Claude Puel is just yeah. clearly much better at managing youth than Ronald Koeman was. I was, was. going to say, Southampton have had a good run of managers that um, are confident in their own abilities, don't feel maybe the pressure that others are under and they have a set style that really benefits from a bit of youthful, youthful exuberance on the pitch. So Pochettino, Kuman, and now Puel, they've been lucky to have quite a few managers that have been willing. Yeah, and they've experienced, the managers have experienced leaders they can trust in the right place, like Virgil van Dijk and Charlie Austin up top. You know, those two guys yeah, you can count on to go out and get an 8 out of 10 every match day. Yeah, they've got those consistent 
all the guys that will never let you down. Even if the young guys come and have a bad day, they know that some of the older Van Dyke, even Font, uh, Forster and Gold, Austin, as you said, Tadic, they've got those contributors all over the pitch that allow for younger players to come in and play a role. Can I take yeah. this opportunity to beef with one Southampton player that I just absolutely deplore? Um, obviously, like I've, I've been to, I think, four or five Southampton games this season now just because they're local to me. Um, and every time I just get so wound up by Oro Romeo. He's just the most frustrating player because the fans love him. Like He's seen as like this key player who like does so much. I mean, pretty much exactly like a poor man's Coquelin. He's no, he's not even as good as Coquelin, who's not good. Um, like he has no quality on the ball. He's quite often in the wrong pay, place, and the best, the only thing he can really do is tackle. I mean, the amount of times against like Bearsheva where he would get the ball and then just either give it away or play a dumb pass or just recycle it backwards when there was a good opportunity going forwards, and the, the, the fans just love it. Yeah, they love they it when love they see you make a tackle. Like I was watching, because I like to indulge in a bit of Arsenal fan TV when Arsenal lose for a few meltdowns, and I saw everyone just raving about Coquelin's performance. And then I go on Twitter, and I see my Twitter feed, and there's these four four two stat zone maps and stuff just showing how little he contributed offensively, and the fact that he actually didn't do as much work as people thought he did defensively. I think that people have people have short memories. They they remember memorable events. So if he comes in with a crunching tackle, they're going to remember that maybe more than the. But they see his build and think of the type of play he is rather than what he's actually doing on the match day. Yeah, I also think there's this um, myth that defensive midfielders have to be able to tackle. It's just, I mean, you look at the the best teams and the defensive. It's clear that intercepting is better. Exactly. I mean, you look at like how I mean the, the the manager that sets up a midfield probably. The most impressively, the most sort of, I don't know, pure is Guardiola. And you don't have a destroyer in a Guardiola midfield. You have lots of creators who have intelligent tactical play. So they're in the right position. They intercept the ball. And from there, you can can break a lot quicker. Um, Yeah, if you don't have to go down and get up to play the ball... Exactly. So, like, this, this, it's so frustrating to see, like, for example, Arsenal playing Coquelin next to Shaka when they could play Shaka next to Ramsey, and that would sort yeah. of immediately set them up more proactively. Um, I mean, you, you saw them against Basel last week, and they're brilliant. There's by far the best Arsenal performance I've seen in in probably about two, three years. Um, Shaka, I don't know. It's something. It's something that you have to do in England, or that's the perception compared to something that you would have to do in Spain. You know, in, that, in Spain, you could play midfielder without a destroyer and probably get away with it, except when you have to play Real or Barca and you just need someone to take take someone out. But Shaka does all that, and he can do all those things on the balls. I'm spewing. He's uh, he's 24 now that we can't rave about yeah, him. Yeah, that's a special player. <laughs> but he does. He puts those country tackles in when Arsenal out of position. He's aggressive, and he's fantastic on the ball. Can ping some lovely passes. Has a great strike as well, score some fantastic goals, but he doesn't get seemingly the love um, that the player that's far more limited gets. It's just a bit confusing. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's the cult footballer or something that they... Fan favorite. You know, know he's he's not that good, but maybe he has the appearance of working hard for the team or putting in tackles and, you know... Yeah, I mean a true a true old old style football old style, player. Yeah. Love, yeah. And if there's one thing that Cochrane does well, it's getting into the frame of a celebration when someone else has scored and looking really passionate. <laughs> <laughs> um, shall we continue to talk about youth football then? Because I've I've got a couple more yeah. to talk yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's finish this before Connor falls asleep. I know he was he was up all night. <laughs> I've actually woken up. Like I'm I'm revitalized now. Um, but I, I wrote a couple of points in the the plan that I think are quite interesting going forward. I mean, especially for us, like as a website, it's more difficult for young players to go out to the football league clubs and get match experience now because um, there are reforms to youth loans by the football league um, over like over the summer. Um, so yeah, so, now, so explain a little about what those entail because I, I was looking at them and you know it seems it seems like it's just a worse system. Why would they do something like that? Uh, I mean, I, I think there's some logic behind it, but for, for basically, for lower league clubs used to be able to do emergency loans. So, like, they would be able to sign a player for 30 days um, that was under like 21 or 23 or something like that, uh, and then 
he would be able to play in the team for a month, get some new football, then go back to his club, maybe come back for a little bit longer, maybe go to another club, maybe that's enough for him to get into his team back at his, his uh, parent club. Um, but now um, it's more of a risk because you have to sign a player for, uh, like you can only sign them during the window. So essentially you're, you're doing this between September and January if you're like a, a normal club. But otherwise you're saying, right, oh, we're going to have him for two months. And then in October, we're just going to reduce the size of our squad by one. So it's a longer term commitment, uh, which means you can't take as many risks. Um, players can't be recalled by their club. So the players that are really promising and you know could actually break through for, in their team at some point in the season, they're not actually going out on loan to other clubs. Um, and or if, if their parent club ran into an injury situation, you know, like how the emergency yeah. loan, so you're like a, league, like a league one team, you would emergency loan someone from the Prem or the Championship, a young kid, and maybe yeah. he'd play in your squad. I mean that was sort of like the the idea for the rationale for the the system originally, and then it's obviously been yeah, and it would it would save lower league clubs money because you could have maybe a little bit of a, a tighter squad, and then you it helps the big clubs too because you can develop your players that way. Yeah, I mean obviously the the, the reason this has sort of been introduced is because you had a lot of players sort of then bringing in some really really brilliant players that they really couldn't afford under the the normal under the actual system. So. Um, I mean, I talk about someone on the pod all the time, but this is the lower league club that I know, like the back of my hand. Um, a few years ago, they had like five guys on loan from um, uh, Spurs. I mean, not the restaurant, but like five players. Uh, they were on loan, all of them on loan from Spurs. Uh, and a lot of them were really good. Like Ryan Mason has gone on to play for England. Um, I think uh, obviously there are a few that have then gone on to be successful uh, in the lower leagues. Um Massimo Luongo uh, ended up signing okay. for the club and then moving on. Just wanted to throw a mention in for you, Steve. And a lot of the, like Swindon for a couple of years were really, really doing well off the back of this, back, back of this loan system. Uh, and a lot of the other football league clubs sort of didn't have the opportunity to do it because they didn't have this link to like a Spurs, a Liverpool, an Arsenal, or whatever. Um, so this has sort of leveled the playing field in the sense that you know teams have to at least make a commitment that they're sure of. Uh, so it's more like a transfer, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it that maybe doesn't really suit the way that the lower league clubs have been run in the last like ten, fifteen years. Um, yeah, no, I, I think I think it's good because if you say say there's a lower league club that has a consistent relationship selling players to a, a Premier League club, so they're technically like a feeder club or something. Maybe they'll be able to kind of like rig the system if if they have a good relationship with Chelsea and keep getting those guys for a month or something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the risky take, I guess. But what it does mean is that a lot of clubs are not sending their players out on loan to um, like the low league clubs um, because, obviously, that they could get an injury crisis and need someone to fill, tight, fill, fill in on the bench. Or yeah, exactly, if you're not able to recall them. Um, yeah. So I think Klopp, for example, has basically said, I don't want to send that many players out on loan because I'd rather have them here with me so I can watch them and put them in the team somehow. But obviously, Liverpool only have a certain amount of games. They only have 11 positions on the pitch. They only have a few positions on the bench. And they have a first-team squad. Um, most of these players are playing in the youth league week in, week out. And the youth league's quality is not 100% brilliant. The reason people are going out on loan Maybe, maybe this will improve the quality of the youth league. It, it might, you know? but at the same time, it's like not men's football in the sense that... Yeah, it's not the same. Like, it, it, you, ha- you have these like second teams that play in like the German leagues, for example, and they're so much worse just because they, although they're all generally quite talented players, they just don't have this like experience uh, that when they come up against the teams that are full of experienced senior players, um, they just sort of fall apart. So I think the, the reason that the youth league is bad is not necessarily because the players are bad, it's just that the way that football is played there is different. Yeah, and because you're going to call, you're gonna call up your best player or loan them because they'd be playing against better competition, you know, in the, even in the championship if you're in the prem. But the thing I think it's it's maybe it's kind of scary now for these lower league clubs who can't kind of give a player a one month trial. They have to get someone who probably isn't playing regular football, so you don't really know how they've been doing lately, and then take a chance on them on like a six month or a one year loan. Yeah, and so. I think also the the troubling development of this system is that there's now going to be more pressure from the big clubs who can hoover up the talent from the Football League whenever they want um, for them to then bring in sort of second teams to play in the Football League system. Uh, I mean, it's sort of been ruled out for now, but it 
this pressure is not going to go away. Um, and I mean, there's a reason that like the Czech trade trophy, for example, has been so fiercely opposed by fans of the lower league. I mean, most clubs have had their lowest uh, like attendance since like, the second world war in this competition. Um, and essentially just because like no one sees the point in having under 23 teams from Premier League clubs and championship clubs in the lower leagues or in lower league competitions when they could just send their good players out like yeah, this, to the this, clubs. This kind of reminds me of when Barcelona B won Liga Adelante a couple of years ago and they couldn't go up. And like obviously we were talking about that last week, but it's like the same thing. It's like if you're a small team like Alaves or yeah. Alaves, yeah. I don't know. If you're a small team like that, that's annoying for Barcelona B if they're they're coming up and taking the top spot and giving more TV money to Barca or something. But I guess that's why they can't do that. But um, yeah, one last point, I guess, in the youth, the youth thing before we answer the Twitter question. Uh, Lyndon Gooch, he's an American, wanted to give a shout out to him. He's ranked the 41st best American by 442 in their rankings this, this week. He has nine Premier League appearances for Sunderland, so he's been getting some time, but he is almost 21, so he's not not exactly a teenager, but no to, yeah, yeah, no Pulisic or Pulisic, as I guess technically he's he wants to be called. Uh, I don't know. So for all the Europeans who think he think Americans are pronouncing his name wrong, technically we are, but I guess he wants it to pronounce it as Pulisic. Yeah. Anyway, and other other young Americans, I went to the college championships this week, this last week. It was the semifinals and the final. And it was interesting that like the pitch wasn't great, and all three matches went to extra time, and two of them went to penalties. <laughs> like the first one, it was actually like an epic penalty shootout. It was ten to nine. Only Tell the last the person. Of the college games. So if you get subbed out in the first half, you can't come back in until the second half, but you can come back in. And then the second half, you can you can basically like re-enter, so you can Disgrace. get subbed out for like a two-minute break and then come back in. Yeah, I don't know. If I think if I was a manager, I'd run it like a hockey team and run an ultra press. But maybe you can't do that because also in the rules, you're not allowed to train the whole season around. That's why not a lot of college soccer players go pro is because Man. the season is just the fall, so they can only practice like a certain number of hours per week by the NCAA the college governing body and Americans really love destroying things, don't they? Yeah. And the, and the clock counts down. So in like the end oh. of the half, like the PA announcers, like 10, nine, eight. It's like, what? I sure you went to watch football. Cause it doesn't sound like it. Sounds like basketball. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, very Americanized. Disgraceful. Disgraceful. But I don't know, but Jordan Morris last year at that at that tournament, he scored two goals in the final for Stanford, and they they won back to back titles. So some of his, I don't know, they I guess they had a pretty good team. I really don't understand that you can't train all year round. Like, wh- why? Um, because the, I think the the college federation wants to maintain the appearance of amateurism, even though in like in football. Oh, like the- like the same with there are schools that make like a hundred million that make like a hundred million dollars a year from football. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But there's not very much money in college soccer, obviously, because of things like how it's played, and there's much, much better soccer to watch. I find that, that odd, like trying to keep it amateur while making all the money out of it, while not allowing players to develop properly. Yeah, exactly. But the problem, I mean, it's just the culmination of the problem with American youth soccer, and that's the pay-to-play model at the at the youth level. You know, in Germany, you could play for the whole year for like 80 bucks or something. In the U.S., it, there's people that commonly pay yeah. 10000 a year. Yeah, in Australia, like, you can get places at like one to 2000 It's not unusual. Yeah, Which is yeah. Ridiculous. But, yeah, anyway... Um, Gonna move on to the Twitter question we got from John McKenzie at John McKenzie, of course. Um, he asked which European league is best for blooding young talent, and I think we kind of talked about it a little bit. We I know we really mentioned Bundesliga because 
of obvious reasons. You look at all the, the young guys coming through there. Yeah, it, it, it really is the best for, for developing young talent. I think, I think we can agree. The Premier League is the worst and La Liga is the second worst. Yeah, that's big, again, because the stakes are so high, I think, right like right now. And Italy, I don't know, Italy is kind of just bad, it's really, bad, no, bad developing but it's Italian kind of changed. talent. Yeah. It's kind of changed. Uh, yes, there's been a problem with Italian young talent, but I think that there is actually a lot of really, really good youth talent in Serie A that's kind of bucked the trend of yes, the year and the old stereotype of the old Italian league, all the 35-year-old centre-backs chopping people. But, yeah, there's a lot of teams like Atalanta, Sassuolo, even Juventus and Milan have, have pretty young squads now. So I think that's Yeah, Milan this year for sure. And, and I would so think, I think that Ligue 1 really has a, a stake to be number one now. Just think about all the players that have been bought out of League One, just absolutely killing it, especially in the Premier League, but just around the world. And how many yeah, good no, players I'm... there are in, the, in League One right now? That Monaco, Nice, for example, that are just waiting to be bought for massive, massive fees. Yeah, and the thing is, not like players from France traditionally have been cheaper than players from some other places. You know, look at buying a Shaka, I guess, versus buying Adrisagana or Kante, you know, someone like that. Like Because of the reputation of the it league. Seems like, it seems like unless they're a massive superstar, like Lacazette is going to go for a huge, huge, huge fee. But, because of the reputation you know, someone, of the league, yeah. Yeah, someone like, I don't know, well, Kylian Mbappe will will go It'll for a big fee. We're Dembele, talk about so cheap. Monaco. Yeah, yeah, Dembele, yeah. He should have won for like fifty million. Yeah. Um Yeah, so let's let's um move on to Monaco then, because we're we're already talking about them. And Mbappe first first hat trick for the senior side. He's awesome. Next summary. He's fantastic. His goals, all three of them, they weren't the hardest goals, but I think he He's so mature. He just does not look out of place one bit playing playing at the highest level at 17, which just, uh, just speaks volumes about his mentality, his technical ability, and just his just clinical striking ability. He scored a goal at a rate of better than, better than a goal every 90 minutes. I think it was 87 minutes or something like that this season. Um, and, he, and he's played in a team, yes, it's high scoring, and he's come on in, in games that have been dead a bit, but still, I think he's got seven seven goals or so this season. So I think if he got to the end of the season and scored seven goals, a lot of people would have been raving about him. Um, he's scoring more probably than Martial was when he was at Monaco, and he went yeah more than when massive, yeah he's he's seventeen and, and yeah and Martial went for a massive massive fee and everyone raves about him. So I think Mbappe's uh, got a big big future yeah i, don't I mean, I mean rightfully sorry i was gonna say rightfully so marshall's a brilliant player but go ahead connor oh yeah no i was, I was just gonna pick up on like a little bit more on, on that because he was really really good in the i think it was the under 19s euros yeah, yeah he's in, in the summer but he was a standout player and obviously he most of the players there are a couple of years older than him uh and he still stood out so so well obviously he's doing really well and um this uh, he, he was a stand one of the standout players in this really talented sort of French sort of youth setups uh, and then he's proven that at senior level now um, he's yeah he really could go on and be a star somewhere else like I, I've heard that Barcelona are interested in him and I mean maybe in the short term it wouldn't be the best move because he's he's going to only get more minutes at Monaco as this goes on I think um, especially if in January people come in for these prolific strikers that they've got or maybe in the summer or whatever um but you know you could definitely see him going on and becoming sort of a really really key player for for a club like Barcelona Real Madrid or I don't know but how romantic how romantic would a move to Arsenal be no you know the thing is Monaco have no reason to sell I really hope they hang on to a lot of these guys I mean it'd be good to see them together for the foreseeable future I mean the way that they're playing at the moment you know they're playing well in the Champions League they want a tough group they want a tough group and I think Man City We'll have to be very, very, very careful with the way. I, I was sorry to cut you off. I was saying that if they would have played last weekend, Monaco would have thrashed them. 
but yeah, sadly Monaco, it's in February. Monaco is free scoring team scoring how many seven nil against it? Rennes. It was the Coupe de la Ligue, but it was seven nil against a team that plays in the same tier 69 as they do. goals, sixty nine goals in twenty four competi- uh, games in all competitions. Yeah, fifty three in seventeen league arm matches. More so, than three goals a game they're scoring in, in the, the lowest scoring big league in Europe, which I guess according to um, analytics Twitter, Ligue 1 is not, should not be considered, it should just be the top four leagues because, I don't know, I looked it up actually technically, but Ligue 1 is closer to the Ukrainian league yeah. than, than <laughs> to Serie A, I think. But, but it is turning into a really, really interesting title race this season. Nice and Monaco, I think PSG are in a lot of trouble. Um, Monaco and Nice are just two uh, two teams packed with youth everywhere. You think of Monaco, like some of the squads that they've pulled out, just like Bosquile, Lamar, Bernardo Silva, Mbappe, uh, yeah. Fabinho, Bakayoko, like just these players are playing week in, week out, but the performances aren't dipping yet. Um, so I can't wait to see what it's like. Uh, yeah, but like you were saying about the general. title race, I think I was going to say, I don't want to say if it's the best title race or who has the best title race in Europe because we've actually got proper title races in just about every league. About every, even I guess if you include France as a top league because it's what? It's Monaco. They have 30, 39 I, points, Nice 40, PSG 36. Like, PSG, but it's like this is three. I don't know. It's it almost feels like three heavyweights in this league. Where England, it's anyone can pick anyone off. Germany, you don't know. Italy, it looks like Juventus, and then I don't know. Real, I don't. Is Spain's disinteresting? I I just think that it's so exciting because of the massive gap PSG won the league by last season. They walked it. They were how much did they win it by? Like twenty odd points or something. Yeah, and that's what they've been doing. But now, new coach, a couple of transfers out, and uh, some some wonderful managing and transfer moves by Monaco and Nice with Balotelli and the and the likes. I think the PSG are going to lose the title this season. It's a big call, but I think they're in so much trouble. And it's not like there's only it's not like there's only one title rival this year. You know, they could they could stave off Lyon in years past. And Nice outplayed them for large parts. They, on, yeah, on Steve, the Steve Statrek, they they won it by thirty one points. They had ninety six. Lyon, Lyon in second had sixty five, and Monaco sixty five. with a little bit worse goal difference. So there you go. Sad and uh, I lost my train of thought. And the, the, but the previous year they only won it by eight points over Lyon. But it's still such a massive turnaround. And Monaco went. The interesting thing about Monaco is that the last few years they've been renowned for being really well structured, keep it tight at the back, try and nick a goal. They did it really it, they did it really well in the Champions League, except for the game against Arsenal that went a bit crazy last uh, in 2014-15, I think it was. But then all of a sudden, they've kept this defensive rigidity, but then exploded up top with all the quality they've got. Falcao's actually, he's not the same player, but he's scoring a lot, even though a few, few penalties, but he's really leading the team well. And then so many attacking options that even when they're It's like whichever striker they put in is going to score. He's going to score. If and they're rotating a lot, but everyone's scoring. Yeah. Like, what's that stat? Three of the four t- top top four league goal scorers are all Monaco st- strikers? Was that what it was? They've, yeah, they have three strikers with more than five goals. And Falcao, 10. Carrillo, 7. And Germain, 5. And then you add Lamar with his six. And then you got five out of a defensive mid, Fabinho. You guys know how many goals Monaco scored in Liga last year? You want to guess? Uh, I'd say 51. 59. So they're six away in from 17 matches. matching their total in two games less than half a season. So two more games, we'll see if, they, if they've matched it. It'd be incredible if they had a huge drought and finish on 58. With a goal but... difference of 37. Yeah, their goal difference, they have the top goal difference... And Nice and PSG, they're or the top goal scored. Sorry, obviously, but um, they lead Nice and PSG by twenty-one goals. They're the next closest teams. They've scored thirty-two. So all those other teams scoring less than two goals a game, and they're scoring more than three goals a game. 
So if if you want if you want goals, so if you can uh, keep that up for another twenty one games a season, I think they would be the runaway favourites to win the title. Well, guys, you've yeah. given me more than enough reasons to learn Monegasque. Um, I'm <laughs> I'm going for it. <laughs> Flying there tomorrow. <laughs> Why not? At least you're yeah, you just get a like a, a service job at a at a restaurant and sleep in a tent or something like I hear about these workers in the UK doing work that. At, work <laughs> at a casino. Yeah. Then mix it with the rich people and work your way into a yacht. You, you could probably get free tickets to the match. It's always empty at the Stade Louis too. I can't understand why. If I was in Monaco, I'd be chomping at the bit to get to every game. Yeah, it's probably got more important things to do, like you know, make money, splash out, evade taxes. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Minerai oh, is a Monaco citizen. I mean, we have been for however long the podcast has been. So Monaco have six wins this season by four or more goals. They're just, you know, they're unstoppable. But apparently they can get held to, to one one goal and draw 1-1 or draw 0-0 and losing points. So, I mean, I think that's... 21 games to go. Yeah, 21 games to go. That's, It'd be that's almost a really as big of a, big of a, big of a achievement as Leicester with the, with the gap there was last year. So I'm, I'm rooting for them. I'm all behind Monaco. I think they're awesome. They're everyone's second team, I think, now. So everyone's going to get behind them second, uh, second half of the season, and they're going to win it. Any final thoughts, guys? What about a game to watch this weekend? Anything. I know we have, we have uh, Leipzig against Hertha Berlin. It's two versus three in Germany. Very Roma. surprised 2v3 matchup. Mine's Hamburg's going to be absolutely lit, I reckon. Um, Ventus Roma, boys. Come on. Swindon Fleetwood. Big time. <laughs> Uh, obviously, Arsenal Man City is a huge yeah. game. I don't know. Hoffenheim Dortmund is tomorrow. That's their Friday night game. It could be spicy. The, the laptop coach derby. <laughs> see we'll see. Boys. I think it should be a fun weekend. So, everyone, want to thank you for listening to this episode of Scouted Says. If you've been listening on iTunes or SoundCloud, it'd be great if you could leave us a review or I don't know, just tell one of your friends or something. Thumbs so. Up for sure. From the whole scouted crew, we've all been working hard on our profiles. I know I did two over the middle of the night last night. It was Nicholas Stark and Marcel Sabitzer. So two guys that will be involved in that Hertha and Leipzig game on Saturday. So that's that's one I'll be looking for. Yeah, yeah. You know, I had to use the the German one because there wasn't a lot about Sabitzer in English. You know, on on Sabitzer's Twitter, it's actually a link to his personal Facebook page and his, his name on on Facebook is exactly just the opposite of Sabitzer. So it's R-E-Z-T-I-B-A-S. So guess he's getting a friend request. Well, exciting Yeah, maybe we'll get him to uh to like this the scouted page on Facebook. So I know we've been getting some likes over there lately, so thank you for, for stopping by our Facebook if you've been doing that. For Connor Garrett and Steve Ganovis, I've been Jack Grimsey. You can follow Scouted on Twitter at ScoutedFTBL. You can follow Connor Garrett at Connor Garrett, you can follow Stephen Ganevis at Maradonomics, and you can follow me at Jack Grimsey. So from everyone at Scouted, we want to thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Scouted Says. Ciao for now. Thank you.